We had a really fascinating and important conversation with Winnipeg police about how officers more and more are using chest seals and tourniquets when they find victims of assaults. And these chest seals and tourniquets are often keeping people alive. But it's also troubling that they're having to do it as often as they are. We also had an important conversation with a Winnipeg author who has written a book called Overcome Stories of Women Who Grew Up in the Child Welfare System. We had our weekly sports chat with Bob Irving covering many bases, hockey, football, and of course, baseball, World Series. Pretty tight series so far. And Rolling Stone released its 500 Greatest Albums list. So we wanted to know, what's your favorite album? I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. And this is the Thursday, November 3rd podcast for The Start. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb. I think we want to start right off the bat here with a question from Greg, who just asked out loud in response to Jeff Braun's newscast. Why are we talking about the possibility of an early election? I know Jeff qualified it because it was something that the Premier touched on last week and then Kelvin Gertzen mentioning it yesterday. In what universe would this provincial government imagine that it could gain a stronger mandate right now than if they wait and try to build up some more trust with the people of Manitoba, Lorraine? That would be, I hate to use the word suicide flippantly, but it would be political suicide for them to do this, would it not? Well, they've never been lower in the polls than they are right now. So if a, an election were to be held today, the numbers show they would not win. So I, I don't I really don't think that's even on their radar at all. But they they are clarified that they want to stick to that scheduled date, I guess, with that caveat of any sort of emergency thrown out there because they have to. I, I, that, that came out last week and I was like, there's no way that they're going to go early. I just don't see how unless suddenly there's some sort of grand reversal in their fortunes and it makes sense for them. But I'm tired of any government going early on any election. I it, There's a fixed date. A fixed is is not a... It's, it's not a, It shouldn't it's, be a suggestion. It's not a suggestion. It's not a word that you can play with. I just don't even understand why we call it a, we call it a suggested date. Let's change what we call it then. The suggested sure. date for the election is October 3rd. <laughs> Same with the federal government being in October of every four years. And, and it seems to be more like a suggestion to most because, as Jeff also said, the provincial government went early last time around in 2019 when Pallister was at the helm. Trudeau was gone early. It's, so it's a, just, it's a suggestion. Like, don't. I, you the, use the iron with your clothes on. Like, don't iron your clothes with your... <laughs> while you're wearing them. <laughs> while you're wearing them. Yeah, it's uh, it's just an an uh, odd conversation to be having. So maybe we should stop having it because it's simply not going to happen. And the, the fact that anybody suggested it or that it was even worth mentioning last week, let alone this week again, is is really a head scratcher for me. But uh, that, you know, that's where I'm sitting at the, at the at this point in time. Winnipeg police have arrested and charged two people after some children in South Tuxedo got a shocking surprise in their Halloween candy bags. Global's Kevin Hirschfield does more. Police ended up receiving more than a dozen reports of THC nerds candies being found in treat bags on Halloween night. And just two days later, they've tracked down two people allegedly responsible for handing them out. A 53-year-old woman and 63-year-old man were arrested at a home on Coleraine Crescent. 
They now face more than 50 charges relating to distributing cannabis to young people, distributing illegal cannabis, and administering an item that could cause bodily harm. Police say kids between the ages of 6 and 16 received the edibles. They haven't confirmed if any of the children actually ingested them. Now, testing still needs to be done on the gummies, but investigators believe the candies do actually contain THC and are the real thing. So now the question is, why did this pair hand them out? Well, Constable Danny McKinnon says the motive is still unclear. I don't think that we are going to be able to provide anything really concrete today. Um, In meeting with the investigative team, though, I can say investigators believe that nobody was intentionally targeted. Now, word spread quickly after images of the candies were posted by parents on social media the morning after Halloween. And Constable McKinnon says police are thankful with how fast the community acted. Now, this is one time where I would like to say social media did a great job. They quickly spread the news to a small community member, and those people very quickly called the police. That's not often the case. Sometimes social media is just used to report to the social to the social masses, but not to the police. Now, McKinnon also says officers are investigating another report unrelated in North Kildonan of a chocolate bar found with a sharp object inside. Again, police say this is not related to these cannabis candy incidents. And officers say they do get a couple of these reports every year and are again reminding parents to check their kids' candy if they haven't already. A sharp object in your kids' candy. I mean, I can't even fathom why anyone would be doing that. And then around these THC gummies, questions about motive were asked and and sort of answered. But why? Would these be put into kids' bags? It's not funny. It's not a joke. It's potentially very dangerous. The gummies have been sent to Health Canada for official testing, but investigators do believe that they are, in fact, real THC gummies. And the problem is they look just like candy. We all saw the packaging on CJOB.com. And it's where we can get into a whole other conversation, Greg, because Kevin used the term illegal on these types of cannabis edibles because this type of edible cannot be sold in Canada, in part because we have really strict packaging requirements where you can't make it look like candy and you also have to have some sort of childproof sealed bag that they're in and so there's all sorts of things that just make you say what in the heck was happening yeah right at the top of the list and danny mckinnon touched on it you did the idea of motivation why on earth would anybody do this i think everybody is asking this question danny mckinnon sort of taking a shot there at the social media saying you know in essence uh, finally social media does some good but on the social media the reaction brett was sort of Interesting in my mind, because initially people were like, oh, this is a hoax. This can't possibly be true. Uh, This has to be something that somebody's made up trying to get attention, et cetera, et cetera. People were genuinely under the impression and viewing and expressing their opinion that there's absolutely no way that this could actually be happening and almost with disdain. Mm hmm. And the whole idea, there was a, several I saw, like, oh, sure, the old uh, candy's been tainted story. Like, it's a, an urban myth. And there you have Danny McKinnon saying, actually, at least once or twice a year, somebody reports even just the pin or the sharp object in a candy. Like, it's, it, sadly, it happens, and we're making fun of it. We have tickets to give away for Shania Twain, the Queen of Me tour. The new album comes out February 3rd. The concert in Winnipeg is May 14th at Canada Life Centre. And it has to do 
with Rolling Stone magazine's latest list. They've been releasing a whole bunch of lists lately, the greatest movies, the greatest TV shows, greatest et cetera, et cetera. And the latest one is the 500 greatest albums. And just uh, if you're curious, the number one album, according to Rolling Stone, is Marvin Gaye, What's Going On, from 1971, followed by the Beach Boys, Pet Sounds. You've got uh, Joni Mitchell Blue in here. I see uh, some Beatles, Abbey Road, that's number five, Nirvana, Nevermind, number six, uh, Fleetwood Mac, Rumors, number seven. So anyway, we're not going to talk about whether we agree with these or not. We just want to know what's your favorite album. Text us, 204-780-6868. Let's go around the horn here. Uh, Loren, why don't we start with you? Okay, so I've grabbed some audio, and this isn't from the actual album ex- <laughs> itself, but it explains why in the moment when I was 17 years old at this concert that I later clung on to the live album because the recording of the crowd and the way they got into it and the way they changed, he changes the song on the fly and just is such a joy. He's a joyful performer. Just hit it. Not from 1995, I wish it was, but when 1995, I was at a Garth Brooks concert hearing for the very first time that song live, and any time I am feeling low, that is the music I go for, the live version of him. You can feel him smiling in the music, and so it's not the actual album itself, it's what got me there, Brett. Yeah, and you know, that's a good good call on the live music, uh, because sometimes the, the live performance... I, is preferable to listen to than the recorded. Like uh, right. for me, the Hammer to Fall by Queen, Live Aid. I'd, I'll listen to that any day over the uh, the recording. With the uh, crowd noise, right, and the clapping, like the energy or something, it just picks you up. And and yeah, and they, even the band they 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 play that song just a touch faster huh. than normal. Uh, so, yeah, tons of energy. What about you, Mackling? Well, actually, mine it might be similar to Jeff Bronze and Jeff. Uh, this is not purposeful. It, this is just the fact. Oh, it's not. Okay, well, very good then. In fact, my vinyl collection is all over my basement right now. The boys have discovered the magic tote with all the va- vinyl in it. Okay. And in fact, Monday, Alexander asked me, Dad. Of all your albums, which one is the favorite album? And it's not just one album. It's, in fact, a five-album set. 1975 to 85, Bruce Springsteen and the E-String Band. Because unlike Jeff Braun, I've never seen The Boss live in concert. My mom bought me that for Christmas. It would have been probably in 1986. And so it's a cherished uh, gift and a cherished possession that way, but also because I may never, ever see Springsteen live. This might be as close as I get. Well, Jeff Braun, let's go to you next. What's your favorite? Uh, I actually just Googled this, and it's on the list, the Rolling Stone list, coming in at number 125 from the Beastie Boys. It's Paul's Boutique. buying this album and it came out in 1989 and little uh, 13 year old Jeff was 
cruising through the uh, music section at Zeller's, and I, I, was, I just got to the Bees, and I saw the Beastie Boys, the first album, Licensed to Ill, and right behind it was something I'd never seen before. And back then, you know, growing up in Altona, we didn't really have, you know, access to rap uh, news, breaking news, and so I had no idea they had another album. And oh, was, uh, right away as I grabbed it, ran to find Dad, and it's like, Sir, you need to give me an advance on my allowance for the next couple of weeks because I am leaving this store with this album. I'll steal it if I have to, but you should just give me an advance on the allowance. Nice. Like the actual record, Braun, or a cassette, or what? what? It, it was cassette, yeah, cassette. cassette, yeah. What was that song, by the way, Jeff? That was uh, "Shake Your Rump." <laughs> Shake your rump. <laughs> okay, I haven't heard that for years. Thank you for that, sir. Uh, Cameron Poitras, let's go to you next. Yeah, hit that clip there, Forche. Yeah, this was a life-changing riff for me, a life-changing track, Little Line Man by Mumford & Son off of Sigh No More. Um, it, I remember the first time I heard it, I saw it on Billboard.com, and I clicked on it, and I basically ran to buy this album. It was a CD, um, and it came. the song came out, and the band really took off in the summer that I graduated, so it, it's... You know, it's like a lot of the bands that I was really big into in like junior high and high school and elementary school, they haven't like I, I still like them, but they haven't really stuck with me uh, like Sign No More uh, has by Mumford and Son. It's uh, definitely, definitely my, my my favorite album. You know, I love Chris Stapleton's Traveler. That's probably my, my second one that came out a little bit later on. But uh, no, Sign No More, Mumford and Son, favorite one. Excellent choice. Jeffrey Fortier and Master Control. What about you, sir? <laughs> a bit of a bit of an intro there. Yeah. Sure. Like, did he come into the studio to that or something like a wrestler? Like what just happened? <laughs> That's how I waltz in. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know I I can't say it's my favorite album just because I just it's so hard to pick. But I think it has most influence on me. Like I remember you know listening to it when I was like twelve. I know it came out way before I was born, but uh, you know. This is the first time I got into, like, classic rock. Before that, you'd listen to the radio, and you'd be listening to, you know, like, Britney Spears or Christina Aguilera. This is the first time, you know, started getting getting into the classic rock, and, you know, I was playing drums at the time. So it's the first time me and my friends got together, and we would jam this out. So I, I just think it had a lot of influence on me. And that's ACDC, Back in Black? Yes. That's the name of the album, right? Back yeah. in Black? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Very good. And do you like all their... I mean... I guess the, the answer is probably yes, because if you like one album, you like them all. Because they, they sound, they all sound the same. <laughs> Almost they basically, yeah. sound the same. <laughs> That's but, not a criticism, by the no, way. No, absolutely not. <laughs> if no. it's broke, don't fix it. Correct. If what it ain't broke. You, what about you, McGarry? Uh, for me, it would be, well, okay, this one would be my uh, favorite. This is from uh, 1994. I'm just uh, queued up the video here. It's The Offspring. The yeah. song has got to get away. But the name of the album is Smash, and it's just a coincidence that that's the name of the, of the album title, and one of my and nicknames your, is Smash. And your life philosophy. <laughs> Brett Smash. Um, yeah, that it came out okay, as, as I was approaching graduation in high school, but I listened to this album a thousand times, and they, they've made so many other great albums, but this is the one that sticks with me. Although I would say uh, probably my most memorable just because it was such a huge part of my childhood, is um, 
Michael Jackson's Thriller. And I just remember, you know, being so fascinated by the, I'm pretty sure it was a dual LP and pouring over the liner notes on the the, the actual record was because and enjoying the, there was some creepy art on it. Yeah, just uh, it was a really big part of my childhood. So let us know at 204-780-6868. What's your favorite album? Do you think the province should be spending more money on health care or less? So I think we all know billions of extra dollars were poured into pandemic health-related measures. But in a new report out today on national health expenditure trends, the forecast shows spending in Manitoba is dropping. So in 2020, there was a 9% growth. 2021, 5%. This year... In theory, we're still spending more, but not as much as the past couple of years. Chris Kuchak is the manager of health expenditures at the Canadian Institute for Health Information. They're the folks behind this data. And Chris joins us now. Good morning. Good morning. Great to be with you today. Well, thanks for breaking this down for us because there's a lot of dollars at play here. But what are we forecast to spend this year and how does that compare to pre-pandemic levels, Chris? Well, when we look at, uh, in the case of Manitoba, really uh, $8,400 per person, which is actually a little bit lower than the national average, which is uh, just over $8,500 per person. Uh, When we look at the trends, what we're seeing in 2022 is a leveling off of health spending, uh, you know, pretty much flat growth in Manitoba. Keep in mind that the previous two years, we saw uh, significant rates of growth uh, in spending driven by the the COVID pandemic. Uh, What we're not seeing, however, is that uh, levels of spending are not going back down or returning to those pre-pandemic levels. So $1.8 billion a year in Manitoba, it represents one-third of the total provincial budget. It's, as Loren said, it's a, it's a lot of money. But the federal government also handed out a ton of money uh, to sort of top things up during the pandemic. Did all that money get spent, Chris? Do we know? Well, I mean, what we're seeing, we saw significant spending growth. I, I look at the trends and I see much like a horse race. You know, the last two years, the the growth was being driven by the COVID pandemic. That's fallen back to the pack. But now we're seeing those longer term structural trends taking over. So think of healthcare use, think of aging population, think population growth. These are all now driving spending uh, going forward. So we're not seeing a return back to uh, pandemic levels of spending. So some might be thinking, okay, sure, we can't we can't keep up to the same levels we were at in the past couple of years. That said, our hospitals are struggling. Our frontline workers are struggling. So wouldn't more money help? Well, I mean, what we're seeing is actually a pickup in the pace of growth in hospital and physician spending. In fact, uh, we actually saw a drop in physician spending in 2020. Just think of, you know, the pandemic. There was closures, lockdowns. People weren't going uh, to the doctor or afraid to go to the to their doctor. Uh, but what we're seeing now is healthcare use is now driving growth going forward. Think about that care that didn't happen during the pandemic coming back. You think about routine care for chronic disease management. And then, of course, new care that's naturally going to come about with uh, growing population and an aging population. So what we're seeing is use and demand driving spending now. So let's talk about where the money goes. And if we're talking billions of dollars spent in Manitoba, 
what per- what percentage is going to the hospitals or the doctors themselves, Chris? Well, I mean, your big three, and this has been the same now for, for many years, uh, hospitals, uh, payments for physician services, and your, your prescription drugs. Those are your big three categories of spending. Over half of your dollars uh, of the health spending pie are going to go to those big three categories. And what we're seeing is that, again, a pickup in the pace of growth for payment for physician services, uh, hospitals, thinking about catching up on backlogs of elective surgeries. So that's driving growth going forward. So what's next here? The the private-public split, the conversation in Manitoba here, we're turning to outside sources uh, south of the line uh, in North Dakota, in particular outside of Manitoba to help catch up with regard to surgeries and the backlog in those surgeries. And some of those surgeries are going to be taking place taking place in private facilities. Is Is there more money being spent that way across the country? Well, what we're seeing actually is um, we have to distinguish between private delivery versus privately paid. So what we're seeing is, yes, uh, care being delivered in private facilities. That's uh, a, an innovation or a new uh, process that's, uh, that provinces are using, but they're still paying for it for government funds. So publicly paid, privately delivered. And so we are seeing uh, still uh, payments for uh, those, those services. Chris Kuchak is the Manager of Health Expenditures at the Canadian Institute for Health Information, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Chris, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Have a great day. We have a text message saying, what do I do to win the Shania Twain tickets? You tell us, what's your favorite album? Text us at 204-780-6868. Talking about this because Rolling Stone has issued its list of the 500 greatest albums ever. Uh, Mine was The Offspring, Smash, and uh, we've got Offspring tickets to give away at the end of this segment. By the way, Greg, why are we playing Twist and Shout? When I was nine, my dad and I went into Winnipeg to shop. This is from one of our listeners this morning who says... This was a big deal in 1964. My dad loved music, and we had to visit Sears, the Sears record department that day. Bob Burns was there that day, and Bob Burns hosted a a television show on CJAY back in the day. It was like a dance program. Well, when the buzzer rang, that person won their album. My dad was buying Twist and Shout by the Beatles, and yes, we won the album. Wow, this was why that album is my favorite to this day. We were so happy. Yeah, you have to think about, you know, a time, too, when music wasn't as accessible. Even Braum was talking about getting to a record shop when he was younger, right? And that's how you, you couldn't just go online or on your phone and grab the song that you wanted. You had to save up. You had to make that trip in. You had to get into the city. And there would be times, even growing up on the farm, that it felt like we were a year behind, you know, Brett? Like, oh, that song. You'd be singing a song and someone in the city would be, that song's been out for a year. And you're like, I don't know, man. <laughs> I just got the album. So it's new to me. Because it was just, you didn't have that access. It was just a different time. So I can see how that would stand out, A, for the trip in, and B, just getting your hands on the music itself. Yeah, yeah, because it's just so, it's so easy to access music from all over the world. It's, you know, there there used to be a time where you might know a song, but where do you find it? Where do you right. dig it up? Like even... Um, 
let's say you're at a nightclub. They play a lot of, you know, they, they always play dance music, or in my time it was electronic dance music, and a lot of that was not ac- accessible for purchase. Certainly didn't have access to streaming or anything, but now any song, all you got to do is hold up your phone with one of those right. apps like... Shazam uh, or whatever Shazam. it is. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Within three seconds it tells yeah. you... Oh, this is the uh, the Eduardo boys extend a mix of uh, whatever. I don't know. I'm making something up here. And then you can just go to YouTube yeah. or, or any streaming platform and find that song within 90 seconds. How many of us went to the record store back in the day and started humming the song? You know that one by that guy. It goes like this. It's a group. And the person behind the counter, I have no idea what. Or they would know right away. Oh, you're talking about this one. Do you have it? No, we're waiting for it. Like a heart oh. of glass. I can remember uh, my dad was just sharing this story with me the other day. Heart of glass by Blondie. We lived in Brandon at the time, and there were a couple of places where you could get records. And the forty-five wasn't necessarily a slam dunk that you were going to get the latest greatest song because they might only bring in so much inventory. Do you yeah. have fill in the blank? We should make the next having coffee, Brett. The song then. That drove you nuts that your roommate or friend or sibling came home with and then played over and over and over again in their room. Ooh, that's a good one because I, I, ten, I tend to be that guy who yeah. will listen to a song on repeat at, for weeks at a time. Oh, I can't listen to No Doubt like that. I had a roommate at university where I was like, Ingrid, for the love of all things holy, like find something else to play. <laughs> Okay. Don't speak and don't play that song ever again, was what I was saying to her. I am going to put that on the sheet right now for tomorrow. Time for the small town salute. This morning we are going too far outside the perimeter highway, just a bit south of the city to one of the fastest growing communities in Manitoba. Neverville is our destination, and Wes Hildebrandt joins us this morning to tell us about a special event taking place Saturday night. Good morning, Wes. Good morning. So you could take Highway 59, you can take 200, you can take 75, and then scoot over east off the red. There's lots of ways to get there. But when you get to Neverville, if you haven't been to the town in a couple years, I think people might be surprised about how fast it's grown. Tell us a bit about some of that exciting expansion with how homes and businesses well, I mean, yeah, Niverville has uh, definitely been growing leaps and bounds. And, uh, you know, I mean, as the vision happened with the uh, council of Niverville about 20 years ago, uh, the whole idea of uh, keeping the seniors in the community was huge for them. And I think that's uh, really helped with uh, the way that the town has grown uh, because it's impacted uh, not just the younger families, but uh, also the seniors that uh, continue to live here. Yeah, so that means families can stay together in the same community longer. And Saturday night is the Niverville Heritage Centre Gala. Can you tell us a little bit about the Heritage Centre, Wes? Yeah, the Heritage Centre is an aging-in-place campus. We've got independent living, assisted living, supportive housing, and long-term care. And right now we have about 210 residents that live on our campus. And uh, um, we've got uh, roughly about 240 staff that uh, work um, basically 24-7 with regards to our residents and, you know, just helping in so many different ways. And and it's a uh, not-for-profit centre. So for us, it's it's really one of the jewels in in the community for the dream that they had. Uh, And then as well, I mean, the the gala that we have is our only uh, fundraiser 
major fundraiser that we have during the course of the year, and uh, we use that to, um, you know, get uh, different supplies and, and equipment back uh, to the level that they should be at uh, for our residents. Now, you have a very special guest speaker on Saturday night. Who is joining you? Yes, we have uh, Jennifer Jones, um, a name that probably most Manitobans uh, uh, affiliate uh, definitely with, uh, with curling. Uh, and for us, it's exciting because uh, Jennifer actually has a family connection to Neverville in that uh, her mom and uh, her mother's brothers uh, were raised in the town of Neverville before her grandparents ended up moving to Winnipeg. So uh, it's kind of a, a special thing to to kind of come back to where the roots were kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, we're excited on having her join us, and uh, um, I'm looking forward to the event. Are still tickets available, Wes? Uh, well, there <laughs> will be a li- few more tickets available today, but after today, uh, we won't have any more seats that we're going to open up. So, How do we get our hands on those uh, tickets then, Wes, before we let you go? Yeah, 204-388-5000, extension 210, is my assistant, and she'd be more than happy to uh, sell the tickets. So repeat that number again? 204-388-5000, extension 210. All right, Wes Hildebrand joining us for the Niverville Heritage Centre Gala. Thank you so much for joining us, Wes. We appreciate the time, sir. Thank you. Earlier this week, Winnipeg hit a grim number, 44. 44 homicides so far this year. The same disturbing record that we hit back in 2019. Except we still have two months of the year to go. So what we're contemplating this morning is would that number be even higher if it weren't for medical interventions being applied by police? And and some of this is fairly new. So consider this news release yesterday involving a man who had been stabbed and left bleeding on the street. Except when police arrived, they didn't just go looking for the suspect. They administered the use of a chest seal to try and prevent the victim from bleeding out. And chest seals, tourniquets, different applications, they're increasingly being used by the front lines, on the front lines by Winnipeg police. And so we thought we should find out more. Constable Rob Surrett is the manager of the Tactical Trauma Care Program with the Winnipeg Police Service. Good morning, Constable Surrett. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. Well, thanks for taking the time to explain this, because I've been, I've been wondering for a while now, you know, what has been going on with our officers. And so take us back. What was behind the impetus to start providing this kind of medical training for police? Uh, yeah, so this medical training was started by Constable Dan Hammerling approximately two years ago. So he's the creator of the program. Um, and it was just a, a need for uh, frontline members to, uh, A, protect themselves and as, as equally uh, important to protect the civilians of Winnipeg. So, uh, yeah, so he developed this training and it's just some basic uh, skills. Uh, we call them life-extending skills uh, to essentially get them to paramedics. So, uh, so yeah, so just stopping major bleeds, um, and then uh, chest seals would treat chest wounds or penetrating te- chest trauma. And then uh, you could also pack wounds where, uh, where, where tourniquets can't be applied because tourniquets are traditionally only applied on the limbs, on the arms and the legs. So uh, essentially, we, we do enough uh, as WPS members, and uh, it's our frontline members, by say we. Um, they're doing the work on the street, and they're doing a fantastic job. So, uh, yeah, so that's we do enough to get, get them to paramedics and get them to our, uh, our amazing uh, trauma center at HSC. Uh, Constable, how many officers have this formal training? 
So uh, we're just under 1,500 officers, uh, sworn members uh, in the uh, in the Winnipeg Police Service, and we're nearly done our initial rollout. So it was a two-year rollout. Um, so I would say uh, approximately 1,200 officers have this training. Um, so this is uh, even even our plain clothes officers. <clears throat> everyone gets this training. Um, it's uh, it, it just. Uh, because we have so much turnover in our units that uh, when people get back to the street, they'll have this training and they'll have these tools. Um, I'm a 12-year member, and uh, I wish I would have had this training when I got on. Uh, however, it's better late than never. And I know that we're still looking for firm numbers, but anecdotally, how often are your officers using a chest seal or a tourniquet in the streets? Uh, weekly. Uh, I'm getting reports of officers using it weekly. Um, we're currently in the process of uh, a joint operation with the WFPS um, to track uh, exact stats. It's in the final stages of completion. Uh, so for 23 or 20, 2023 and 2024, we should have exact stats. However, uh, I know for a fact that uh, just officer from word of mouth and uh, emails and reports that I'm reading that they're, they're applying chest seals weekly and tourniquets and packing wounds weekly. You mentioned the fact that you wish you had had this training years ago, because I can imagine there might have been scenarios where you would arrive to the scene and think, like, is there more I could be doing here? But you don't have the tools. You don't have the kit. I'm curious. You know, we referenced that homicide number off the top, Constable Surrett. Do you feel like there are situations where we would have lost more lives? That number might be even higher if this training wasn't here? Uh, I could, I could sh- for sure believe so. Just from a couple of reports that I've read, where members have applied tourniquets on, on, on wounds that w- would have been fatal without a tourniquet. Uh, so homicides could have homicides or any anything else could have been. Uh, yeah, the the, uh, the civilians or the uh, casualties uh, would have definitely passed away should the uh, frontline members uh, not have intervened with uh, their training that they have received uh, from the WPS. So. Constable Rob Surrett is the manager of the Tactical Trauma Care Program with the Winnipeg Police Service, our guest in this segment. And Constable, how does so how does it work a situation where this might be used? I can imagine that there are scenarios, you mentioned the fact that police are often the first on the scene, but there might be dangerous situations where paramedics, it's too dangerous for them to get to victims of these crimes. It might be an active scene, so to speak. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Win- Winnipeg's quite a uh, a diverse, pl- or, uh, it's quite a, a violent place. Uh, we won't sugarcoat it. Um, however, um, yeah, absolutely. So paramedics, uh, they're not allowed to be on on hot zones per se, which is a scene that's actively dangerous. Uh, no fault of their own. Um, that's why the need for this training that uh, Constable Hammerling uh, sought out a couple years ago, two years ago. Um, it's so important. Um, essentially, our paramedics are amazing in Winnipeg, and so so uh, so are our doctors and everything. So we have to get them there. So that's why um, that's why our training is to is is life extending. So if we can stop that that traumatic bleed, that femoral artery bleed, or or prevent that uh, or lung from collapsing, to get to our paramedics, to get them to the hospital, uh, that's essentially what we're trying to do here. Constable Rob Surrett is the manager of the Tactical Trauma Care Program with the Winnipeg Police Service joining us live on 680 CJOB. Are you looking at expanding this training? Uh, this, tra- this training is going to be, uh, it's biannually recertification. So right now we're in the process of rolling out our recertification process. So essentially it would be the uh, the officers that have uh, 
have gotten uh, first-year training or the training in the first year, they'd be recertifying. Um, our cadets are in the process. Uh, we have just started training them because they are front lines as well. So uh, we have expanded uh, this year in this cadet class that uh, has just uh, graduated. So, uh, yes, the more people with uh, this type of training, for me, is uh, is definitely a benefit to uh, to everyone in Winnipeg, because uh, then our cadets or our police officers could roll onto a scene, and uh, should they deem it safe enough to provide this medical care, they just do so because they do have the training and the tools. Is this done elsewhere? Elsewhere, in uh, other cities? Uh, yeah, there are there are several other cities in Canada that, that issue some sort of program, along with uh, many uh, many agencies in the U.S. Um, so yeah, this is this is not new. It started in a, this. It's called Tactical Combat Casualty Care. Uh, that's what the program device or derives from. So therefore, um, that started in the early 2000s, and then it's been developed uh, in the last 20 years to uh, to what it is now. Uh, Constable Hammerling and uh, Dr. Grierson, he's our he's our medical director on, on whom we operate under. Uh, they they. Uh, they got or they got this course running, and uh, they developed this course essentially tailor made for the WPS. So uh, we were super lucky to to get this training started a couple of years ago. All right, Constable, thanks very much for taking us inside this program, the need for it, and when it's used, we we appreciate it very much. Sounds good. Thank you very much for having me on. Constable Rob Surrett, manager of the Tactical Trauma Care Program with the Winnipeg Police Service, uh, talking to us about chest seals and tourniquets. And Just makes sense, hey? Yeah. Like yeah. That, that that would be why we, how we would do things? I think so, and it, it, it kind of provides... Um, maybe even a, just a, a bit more peace of mind to know that in the event that you mm-hmm. are involved in an altercation where you are injured by some malicious attacker, that the if it's police first on the scene, that they might be able to save your life. And when a constable comes out and says, Loren, let's be honest, Winnipeg's a violent place. I don't know about you, the hair on the back of my neck even though i know that tr- to be true when a police officer says that police officer says that out loud it uh, it sort of catches you right in the gut yeah i think it's looking that in the context of when they roll up onto the scene particularly in the middle of the night and in, in a, you know maybe a dark alley that it can be concerning for officers and concerning for paramedics and so you if you're going into that together um that might be the reason why you feel a bit more alert than anyone else right and so i think it's he said weekly they're using this i i feel like every single week if not more often per week we're seeing this sort of application of first aid care and if paramedics can't get in right away because of a potential dangerous situation or a suspect that you don't know where they are then it makes sense that some officers are attending to the victim and some are looking to track down who did it A new study says popular diet books may not cite evidence and may promote the other author's other products. Where do you get nutrition advice? So you can weigh in on that at CJOB. The back of a chip bag. <laughs> I can't. Hey, I, I was. I had Doritos for lunch yesterday, so that was my that was my healthy snack. <laughs> yes. Yeah, like you know when you read the labels and the calories and you just ignore them anyway, you're at like McDonald's and it tells you that quarter pounder meal has 17,000 calories in it. I don't care, board. <laughs> order it up. I, I know. <laughs> like why why? Yeah, if you're Like I'm at McDonald's. I already know what the situation is. <laughs> Quantifying it is helpful sometimes, but it, Sometimes. Yes, sometimes. I can remember the first time I saw that in New York, it was uh, the nacho cheese sauce. 
they had it on the board at Yankee Stadium and a little cup of it, and it was like 25 or 50 calories or something. I said, oh, I, I could have that. That justified. Oh, really? Oh, like that was a good amount. Yeah, yeah, it was a good amount. It just makes you sad. Like you're out for supper and they're telling you fettuccine Alfredo is literally injecting your veins with fat at 1,700 calories. I don't want to know. Yeah, your full day amount. I made that number up, but you know what I I mean. Like like an average plate, I think, is over 2,000 fettuccine Alfredo. (laughs) No way. I mean, I get we should be healthy, Brad. I didn't mean to sidetrack that, but I sometimes... No, Less it's is true. More. No. Less is more, yeah. you know? Yeah, when, you, when, you're, when you're eating potato chips, the last thing on your mind is, this is healthy. This is part of my complete breakfast. So <laughs> like, <we're... laughs> it says four. Sorry, the serving is four chips or yeah. something? Like, get lost. <laughs> that, that's a, like, that's... in what scenario am I opening up a bag of chips? One, two, three, four. I'll have four. Yeah, I might. I'll eat the whole bag in four minutes. Yeah. Never mind. Have four chips and nobody's, put it away. Nobody's doing that. <laughs> um, John Lennon. Why are we playing John Lennon? George says I'm a really huge Beatles fan, and my favorite Beatle is John Lennon. When Double Fantasy came out, that's back in 1980, if you can believe that. I couldn't wait to purchase it, bring it home, and listen to it. I still have the album to this day. Played it so many times. All my mom would say to me is. George, don't you have any other music you can listen to? To which I replied, is there anyone better than John Lennon? She shook her head, laughing, and walked away. We're asking you at 204-780-6868, what's your favorite album? Because Rolling Stone revealed its greatest 500 albums, and we just want to know what's your favorite album. Stacy, for example, says, my favorite album is from the 80s, Mini Pops, Let's Dance. Mini Pops Christmas. Stacy says, when my cousins and I were young, we would put the vinyl on in my cousin's basement and make our own dance routines. We did this almost every weekend while our parents played cards upstairs. We'd be so excited to perform our routines for our parents at the end of the night. You did that, McNabb. For sure you did. A hundred thousand percent to all the tunes. In fact, Kylie Minogue, when her record came out when I was, I don't know, 11... We had fake names. My sister and I were Kylie and Katie Minot. There might be a Katie Minot out there. I don't know. But we had a whole choreographed routine to that album. And then my brothers always lament the fact that their sisters were older because it impacted all their musical influences. They're like, you guys couldn't listen to Metallica or like Megadeth or something? Like They know all the words to Wilson Phillips, New Kids on the Block. Like, you know, they they have some metal and stuff in their lives too. But if it weren't for like friends' influences or our boyfriend's influences, bringing hip and stuff in, they're like, oh, we are doomed. I should not know all the words to the mini pops right now. But they did. Winnipeg Jets are preparing to host the Montreal Canadiens tonight at Canada Life Centre. And following last night's action in the NHL, the home team is tied for second place in the Central, just two points back of Dallas. The Jets have managed a 5-3-1 and record in the opening month of the schedule. So all is well in Jetland, right, 
Kyle Connor? We want to play the right way. I don't think it's sustainable. You know, I mean, we get shot out 16 to 1 first period there, and, you know, just the type of chance we've been giving up. Yeah, we're getting some points, but I think as a group, we, we want to be better in, you know, all areas of the ice. The Jets are admitting that if they want to continue collecting points in the standings, their play is unsustainable. In fact, the coach says they've really only played one good game and nine starts. Bob Irving joins us now. Uh, let's talk Shania in a minute. Do you like the honesty coming out of the Jets? Well, sure I do, Greg, and I don't know what else they could say. They were so badly outshot in a couple of those road games that for them to suggest otherwise would be, you know, that would be kind of foolish. Uh, Connor Hellebuck, and this is an old story around here, kind of bailed them out a couple of those games, and you can't go on playing like that and expecting to win. So, yeah, it's uh, kind of as obvious as the nose on your face, I think, that they can't keep playing like that. The good news for the Jets is they've been able to steal some points while they continue to kind of adapt to Rick Bonus's system. And I think it's fair to suggest that with a new coach and a new system, there was going to be some growing pains, and it would take a while for it all to kind of come together. And while that's occurring, the Jets have been able to, you know, collect some points and stay above 500. So I think it's all positive in that regard, but for sure, you can't start the way they started in particular in a couple of those games in L.A. and Vegas and expect to, you know, expect to win on a regular basis. Now let's switch from hockey to baseball because last night four Houston Astros pitchers combined a shutout the Philadelphia Phillies in Game 4 of the World Series. It's the first time since 1956 and Don Larson's perfect game that one team held the other to zero hits. So the game, officially a no-hitter. Should it be, Bob? Well, it's a combined no-hitter. Sure, it's a no-hitter. Brett, uh, there were four pitchers that uh, combined on it for the Houston Astros that Kind of the ironic thing, and I was watching the game last night because the night before, uh, it was just a blast when Philly hit five home runs in the crowd there in Philadelphia. It was going absolutely bonkers, and they took a two-to-one lead in the series. Well, last night, they, after hitting five home runs the night before, they didn't get a hit. Uh, that's how good Houston's pitching was last night. So now the series is tied at two games each. But, yeah, it's a no-hitter, but you, you just describe it as a combined no-hitter. And in baseball today, uh, no starter hardly ever goes the full nine innings. We're in an era where relief pitchers come in and complete games are a thing of the past. That Don Larson game back in 56 for the Yankees, uh, back then uh, starting pitchers went the full nine innings more than 50% of the time. So it's a different game today, but sure it's a no-hitter, and I think Houston now has an edge in the World Series. The, the fifth game will be in Philadelphia tonight, and then the last two are in Houston. I think the Astros have a, a deeper pitching staff, certainly a deeper bullpen, so they would be, in my view, slight favorites now to win the World Series. Yeah, I think I think they need to create a separate category now for these combined no-hitters and, and these different situations where more than one pitcher uh, combines on something that was traditionally uh, something that an individual pitcher would 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 do bob but that's my my view on it canadian football league announced its all-stars yesterday twice what the heck man what, what went down there well for those who haven't followed this story on tuesday afternoon the teams in the league were advised of the all-star teams and the players that had been selected. Yesterday morning at 11 o'clock, those teams were announced. 
And then later in the day yesterday, in the afternoon, the league put out a release saying that there had been a mistake in the tabulation of the voting for the All-Star teams. And in effect, there were a lot of players who were on the original teams announced that didn't deserve to be there. And so they announced a new All-Star team. And frankly, the whole thing was very embarrassing and uh, you know, how this could happen is beyond me, especially when on Tuesday afternoon the teams had been informed, here are the All-Stars, and then somehow Wednesday evening, 24 hours later, they acknowledged that they had somehow made a mistake in tabulating the voting. Now, here's how the voting works for the All-Stars in the Canadian Football League. There's five votes per city, four members of the Football Reporters of Canada, and the head coach. And so in the West, that would be a total of 25 votes. Uh, it wouldn't be that hard to count them accurately, you wouldn't think. But there was also a component this year of fan voting for the All-Star teams. And when they weighted that against the other five votes from each city, I guess, uh, <laughs> I don't know how this happened. Nobody's been able to fully explain it yet. Uh, and here's the worst part of it, okay? So you've got to tell a guy like your Marcus Hardrick of the Blue Bombers, who's an all-star in every sense of the word, who was named to the team originally, sorry, Jermarcus, a mistake was made, and you are not an all-star. Winston Rose and Donald Rutledge of the Bombers were also told the same thing. Sorry, uh, you were, in fact, not an all-star. Now, those two probably didn't deserve to be there, and how they got on there is beyond me anyway, because Rutledge was benched for the last three games right. of the year. And then Nick Dembski was added, which is great, and he deserves to be there probably, at the expense of Lucky Whitehead who had a 1,000-yard receiving season for the B.C. Lions and then was told, sorry, Lucky, uh, you were on the original team, but you're not on the all-star team. The Toronto Argonauts had seven players removed from the original list, including Andrew Harris, who probably didn't deserve to be there anyway. And there you have it. It's uh, Again, I don't know how this sort of thing could occur. Um, and you know, over the course of 24 hours, you come up with the fact, oh, we made a mistake. So it's not a good look, not a good look for the league at all. Well, it's also conceivable some of these players may have had bonuses tied to being all-stars. Bob, yep. we'll have to leave it there. We'll catch up with you again next week, if not before. Thanks for this as always. Yeah, and I'm turning a page now after the fiasco and looking ahead to the semifinal games on Sunday, which should be spectacular. Now, the title of the article from Game On Magazine is Hockey's Nicest Scoundrel. And the scoundrel will be inducted into the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame along with Michelle Sawatsky-Coop, Halder Bajarnison, Andrea Ferguson, Patrick Jebison, and the 1990 Winnipeg Blue Bombers. That all happens tonight. To tell us about player agent entering the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame as a builder is Scott Taylor, executive editor of Game On Magazine. Scott, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the start. Well, I feel badly because my last name doesn't end in M. <laughs> you feel like left I'm out. Part of the team, yeah. Well, we'll have to work on a nickname for you, Scott. That includes an M, and uh, and I promise we will do that. You don't often read nice and scoundrel as descriptors for the same person, certainly not in the same sentence. In a moment, we'll expand on that. But for those that don't know, what is the impact Don Baisley had on the game of hockey, starting with Anders Hedberg, Ulf Nielsen, and some other pretty good European hockey players? Um, Don Baisley was a giant 
of hockey. Uh, when, when, when you pass away at 71 and they have your memorial service at what was then the Bell Centre, is now the Canada Life Centre, um, it's obvious that people in Winnipeg knew how important he was. Uh, Don Baisley was an original, and when I say that, I mean it literally. He was an original. The first player agent was Alan Eagleson in 1966 when he, when he negotiated Bobby Orr's contract. And then the NHL Players Association started in 1967. But as, as most people who can remember back then, the, the owners at the NHL basically laughed at the Players Association until the World Hockey Association came along and, and Bobby Hull signed at Main Street. And then one night in Stockholm, Dr. Jerry Wilson from Winnipeg, of course uh, um, the, the dad of Jerry Wilson and Kerry Wilson, um, was in Stockholm um, working. He was, he was at the university. Um, and Bill Robinson, the general manager of the Jets at the time, had asked him, if, if you ever go to a hockey game, tell me if there's anybody good over there because we need players. The Jets were brand new. They didn't have their team signed. They were looking for better hockey players. So Wilson went to a game and saw this kid take the puck behind the net, and a guy named Harlamov, who everybody thought was the fastest skater in Europe, came to check him, and in two strides he blew Harlamov away. And Wilson phoned Robinson and said, I found the kid, and his name is Anders Hedberg. So they decided to go over to try to sign him. Now there was a problem, of course, because Anders Hedberg had been drafted by the Toronto Maple Leafs. But it was the World Hockey Association, so we're going to steal players. So off they go. Um, Robinson and, uh, and uh, Ben Hatskin head over to, to, to Sweden. And they sit down with Hedberg. And they convince him to come, but Hedberg said, the only way I'll come is if I can bring another player. And Robinson said, certainly. Uh, anybody else from your team? You just tell me who it is. He said, no, I don't want somebody from my team. I want a guy from another team. Ulf Nilsson. And together, they decided they would come to North America. Now they had to get a contract, and they had to be taken care of, so Robinson phoned a young lawyer in Winnipeg who had a great reputation as being a, a really sharp guy. And they called this kid, and he was a kid at the time, 50 years ago, and they invited him over to negotiate the contracts, and his name was Don Baisley. He was one of the original player agents. And so if you call him an agent, he would snap at you. <laughs> Because he so, was a lawyer, not an agent. Well, that's why he'd be good with contracts and everything, Scott, right? Like he understood the minutia of all that. But at the end of the day, um, he was advocating for players and he's an intermediary to the team. And so with that in mind, is that how we get to the nicest scoundrel? You got to work both sides? No, the nicest, you go, well, let's work into the nicest scoundrel now. You're right, Lauren. The, the, he, 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 he was a scoundrel because he worked for the players. And in the late 70s, of course, the Jets were running out of money. Nobody even knew if they would play one year to the next. The World Hockey Association, although successful in certain areas, was very unsuccessful financially. The Jets were running out of dough. Everybody knew it. Hedberg and Nilsson were becoming free agents. Baisley was the agent. And the general manager in New York, a guy named John Ferguson, had decided he wanted Nilsson and Hedberg. And he had a boatload of money to pay them. So, of course, Baisley, who represents the players, not the team, goes into negotiations with John Ferguson, cuts a great deal. They sign a contract. Winnipeg loses two of their beloved players who won them three championships. Um, spectacular hockey players that we all love to watch in the 70s 
off they go to New York. And for about a day, everybody hated Don Baisley. But he was such a good guy that you couldn't hate him for more than 15 minutes. Everybody loved Don Baisley. Everybody loved what he did. And they loved him for a lot of reasons. Number one, he was a tremendous lawyer. And when I say that, I mean he was president of the Law Society. He loved being a lawyer. He was a kid from Riverview, got his degree at the University of Manitoba. He loved what he did. Um, he was also a Winnipegger. This is a guy who could have gone to New York, L.A., Chicago, anytime he wanted to go. He could have got more money working for agencies, working for law firms. He could have done whatever he wanted, and he never left Winnipeg. And there was always a great love for Bayes for that. And even those of us in, in, in the media industry at the time, he wasn't very good to us. He was very nice to us. But he was unlike the agents of today who are very happy to go on the phone and tell you when their client is going to sign and how much money he's going to sign for or how much money we want. Bayes never did that. He was old school. And by old school, I mean he was a guy who really didn't like the idea that the Players Association wanted to make all of the contracts known. They wanted everybody to know how much money everybody made. Bayes was a Winnipegger. You don't know everybody else's salary. You don't tell people what you make. And he never liked that at all, and he never gave us any hints anywhere. And if he did, you were making it up. The Manitoba <laughs> Hockey Hall of Fame honoree, member of the Finnish Hockey Hall of Fame, and now he will be inducted into the Manitoba Sports Hall of Fame tonight. Scott Taylor, thank you for this. We appreciate it. And a uh, terrific look at uh, one of the most influential people uh, in, in hockey history, Winnipeg's own Don Baisley. Thanks again, Scott. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Talk to you later. We have Shania Twain tickets to give away. We're asking you, what is your favorite album of all time? Because Rolling Stone unveiled its list, its 500 greatest albums. Alex, one of our runners-up, Throwing Copper by Live from 1994. Alex says, it was so different from anything I had heard prior to its release. I grew up in a really small town at the local coffee shop in the morning. A couple of the town residents said, wow, you really like singing. But I guess they heard me singing at the top of my lungs while playing the album. You know, songs like Lightning Crashes. How does that go? You know, whoa, I can feel it coming back again. (laughs) See, you know what's so funny is that I sing all the time and people tell me not to. And now I I, I understand. Now you understand. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I don't do it that often. Hey, Brett, who sings that song? It's live. Can we keep it that way, please? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But uh, indeed, Alex says songs like Lightning Crashes are incredible. And still hold up today. Loren, this next one, short and simple, it's uh, Shania Twain related. Yeah, we're getting a few pitches for Shania for sure as a favorite album. And this comes from a listener who says, Watching my 80-year-old dad groove in the barn to whose bed have your boots been under or any man of mine gets me every time. There you go. Way to go. Dad, 80 years old, still grooving a Shania. Mackling, look at this. Another Shania one from Denise. Yeah, Shania up. My daughter was 10. My son was 12. My daughter and I listened to it over and over and sang along all the time. When we did, my son would call us a bunch of undercover poodle lovers. We, we still have no idea why he called us that. The last time Shania was in Winnipeg, my daughter won tickets for us to go, and it was the best concert ever i'd like to win these to pay her back for such an awesome gift sorry denise hate to tell you we're one of your run one of the close, runners up close. I, I know if we feel guilty every day it's like ah we can only pick one but uh 
Ah, Loren, why don't you take us home with the winner? Well, this came in under the wire and had me in stitches because it starts with the line, my wife is going to kill me. (laughs) My favorite album is Boston, the original from 1976. About 30 years ago, my then girlfriend, who is his wife now, and I were parked in a small lot of Silver Avenue enjoying my favorite album with the car windows (laughs) fogged up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Neither of us noticed the police car pull up behind us and the officer get out and walk up to the car. There's a flashlight in the window, a wrap on the glass. <laughs> we're scrambling to cover up. I rolled down the window and the officer asked why we were there. I felt my face get red as he waited for an answer. He asked my girlfriend if she was okay. She managed to nod and quietly whispered, I'm good. I'm just, I'm embarrassed. The officer smiled, told us to have a good evening and was on his way. Every time we hear the song, Foreplay, a long time. My wife and I share a sly smile. Outstanding. They've been married 25 years, and for those sexy, sexy times on Silver Avenue, (laughs) you are the winner. So there's a there's a park there. <laughs> where you oh, park. so this is like a known parking place. I, I could could say that I know exactly where Art's talking about, or I could say that I don't know where Art's the, talking about. Is that the one right off Sackville? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know it too, McGarry. Why does everybody know this park? It's the St. James Rods facilities there now, but it wasn't always there. And then, of course, uh, there was the dump, the West End uh, dump. What, what do they call it? Uh, I, we just call it the dump. The hill? Yeah. Garbage hill? Gar- sure. Yeah. So when that was locked, you had to find an alternative place to go. <laughs> and so you had to have a backup plan. And Silver Avenue, that was a backup plan for some of us. Art, congratulations. Your w- wife might be unhappy with you for sharing the story. Hopefully We're she'll be happy. It. You got the Shania Twain tickets. Congratulations. There are... 11,000 kids in care in Manitoba. That's the highest rate of children in care among Canadian provinces. According to some studies of those kids, less than 10% of youth in permanent care graduate from high school. Less than 5% Loren go into post-secondary education studies. Yeah, and so those are the stats. But behind the numbers, we know there are real names, real faces. There are real stories of abandonment. Loss and, and yes, of course, out of it all, success. And so it's why our next guest asked 10 women to write down their thoughts, their feelings about their journey in and out of the child welfare system. And then she helped them put it all together in a deeply personal and really powerful book. It's called Overcome Stories of Women Who Grew Up in the Child Welfare System. And we're pleased to bring on the woman behind it, Anne Mann, author, lifelong volunteer, and the 14th Chancellor at the University of Manitoba. Good morning, Anne. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for bringing this to our attention. And Michael Redhead Champagne, actually a child advocate himself, texted me about this a couple of weeks ago. And, and now that I've been going through the stories in the book, I'm overcome with so many feelings. And I'm curious why you wanted to get these women together and, and to put this book out there. Well, I just think there's so many communities in the city that the average person doesn't know much about and how it can help us to understand our city and understand our humanity if we understand people who have gone through challenges. And, and I'm particularly interested in people who have faced difficulty and found hope and um, strength and courage in their lives. And it was my privilege to be able to document these women's stories. The stories are incredible. And when you see a picture, it's incredible what a 
picture will do to evoke emotion, but to create a connection as well. And and I don't want to read, you know, your own work back to you here, but I want to read just a tiny bit of Marlene's story here because it really jumped out for for me. A lot of people think that because I'm a university professor, I've lived a privileged life, but they don't know my backstory. I'm the black sheep of the family because I haven't fallen prey to the colonial stereotypes that impact Indigenous people. All my siblings that I'm in touch with have had substance abuse issues. I feel the after effects of this. And that's a story for so many in our community. Yes, I think you've touched on a couple of really important points in that quote from Marlon. One of them being that... um, The book didn't set out to present this, but what became very clear through these 10 stories, nine of which are Indigenous women, is that there's a direct uh, correlation, if you will, or relationship between residential schools, residential school survivors who are often parents, and then their children and uh, the cycle of kids going into the child welfare system as well as an overrepresentation and a systemic racism in both of those areas. I am uh, not a policymaker, I'm a storyteller, but that was very clear to me. Another thing from what Marlon has said is that there is, there's a lot of trauma, and with trauma often comes um, addiction issues, and then through that, other issues that can be poverty, uh, shelterlessness, uh, racism, all kinds of, of very complex difficulties. So the stories are personal, but underneath the personal is really a lot of issues. And the the women who participated and shared their stories, how did you find them? Well, you know, that's so interesting. The first, so I always say, this is my third book on, on, um, you know, disempowered communities. And I always say that people drop from the sky when I start writing. So the first woman, Jackie, she and I had a mutual friend in together and I was introduced to her. Everyone I did not know before I interviewed them, the the level of trust to me is just amazing. One of the women, Amy, I was at a promotional event for my second book. It was a small crowd. Someone asked, what are you doing with your, you know, your next book? I told them what the topic would be. And I had two people come to me that night and say, I know someone that you need to meet. And in the end, Amy was one of them. And, uh, and so it was my privilege as well to write her story, too. So it's amazing. They, they just pop up out of nowhere. Why do you think they wanted to participate? You know, as I'm reading through some of them, I'm overcome, I said earlier, with the emotion because, man, there are some really hard moments to read of maybe abuse, of no food, mom walking out the door, leaving you at the table, you know, yelling her name. A lot of that is so deeply, deeply personal. And yet here they are like an open book in this book. Anne. And so I'm curious what their feedback was to you as to why they thought it was important for them to put this to paper. Thank you. It's a great question. The number one reason is because they want to make a difference. They want Um, the life that they've experienced to be better understood. And they really want to offer hope to youth who are in the child welfare system currently. This book will get its hands into my, hopefully a, a number are being donated into nooks and crannies in the city where um, young people, just like the women in this, in the women in these books, in this book, they, they part you know, where they were 20 years ago or or even five or 10 years ago. 
because they want to send a message of hope and they want um, the reader to know that even though they had these incredible, as you've said, difficulties, they've managed to transform their lives and to live beyond the, the barriers which they faced when they were younger. And it is, it's very inspiring, awe-inspiring to, to be with these women to both write their stories and I think to read them. And you mentioned you're a storyteller. Why are stories so important in our overall history? And why is it important to give those who may not otherwise have a voice, give them voice in a publication like this? I think today the world is very fast-paced. I think often we read little blips and blurbs and, and um, you know, sound bites of, of stories, but we don't read the whole story, say, in the media or on, on the Internet. And, and that's just what the headline is. What about who's behind it? I think we need to be more personal and more human in our understanding of each other. And that's what these stories offer. They offer a very personal experience, just like perhaps if you were um, having lunch with a colleague at work and you didn't know them and you said, well, tell me about your life. And and then, you know, if they were very, very transparent, this kind of uh, expression of of their personal story would, would be shared. And these women that you've spoken to and wanting to come forward and share their stories, um, when they were able to sort of push through did they have good support uh in their in their corner or did they have to you know go go through their struggles alone or maybe a combination of both it's a combination of both um i can think of one woman who ended up with a an amazing foster mom and, and this woman is 40 today and that foster mom is still by her side i i think of uh, another woman who had an amazing social worker and that social worker is still in contact in a friendship capacity later on. I think it's so hard to face the systemic challenges that this kind of upbringing uh, forces someone to face, that they really have to have support somewhere. But it can also come from different places. For example, one story is um, focused on Thrive Resource Centre downtown in the inner city. And there... You know, they walked in to, to use the phone and the computer, but there they found programming and supports. They went on to work for the organization and then to go on and get their university degree. So I think that support can take many different uh, forms, but it's essential. And it also shows, I mean, as much as there has been such, such hardship, and that doesn't even seem like a, a, the right word for some of the stories in here. There's also a woman I was reading about who went on to become a business owner. And then when someone else was talking to her, who was a, a kid in care, said, wait a minute, I can do that. Like, I can grow up and, and become that. It, it can be life-changing for the kids who are currently in care to maybe have something like this, And Yes, and I think that you know, to my earlier point, one of the goals of this book is to show other kids in care that you can find a way. It, it is very difficult. I don't want to sugarcoat it, but that it is possible to find a way, a way out to, you know, look for supports and to start to craft the next phase of your life yourself. Um, the, the author proceeds from this book are going to a Winnipeg organization, Voices. Voices supports youth who are either in care or transitioning to adult 
uh, adulthood. And there is a place where they're always supporting young people. So it's a, it's a wonderful place for youth in care to go to get supports, help with their homework, and help with trying to navigate the future of their lives as well. We just have a moment here, but one of my favorite stories of a of an achiever is from John Montgomery, the gold medalist at uh, Vancouver Whistler, and he's from Russell, Manitoba. And he talks about the day that he he met Theron Flurry, and Theron Flurry's just five eight five nine, and that was the day John Montgomery thought to himself, if Theo Fleury can be one of the best players in the National Hockey League, I can do just about whatever I want. How important is it to see people who look like us doing the things that maybe we otherwise couldn't imagine we could do? It's incredibly important. Um, I think it's it's a life-changing thing for some people. And that's really my hope, and I know the hope of the, the women who participated in this book is to show their own community, but also to show all of us in the greater community of Winnipeg and across the country what is possible. The book is called Overcome, Stories of Women Who Grew Up in the Child Welfare System, written by Anne Mann, lifelong volunteer and the 14th Chancellor of the University of Manitoba. And thank you very much for joining us this morning. We appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Kathy Kennedy is in on Connecting Winnipeg this week. KK, we've been talking about Hello. our favorite albums today. I know you, how much you love music. Do you have a favorite? Well, you know, and I was kind of thinking about that, uh, Brett, because I have so many favorites. And anybody who knows me knows that, you know, Canadian classic rock is where I live. That's my wheelhouse. Yeah. So I was trying to think, well, which of my favorite Canadian classic rock, rock albums would be number one? Is it Chilliwack? Is it April Wine? Is it uh, Streetheart? Is it Harlequin? Is it, you know, uh, Loverboy, who I'm going to see tonight, by the way. Um, Jealous. And, and I thought, I can't pick one. So then I thought, I'll do the next best thing. Toque. Because they cover all of the above. I know <laughs> yeah. you're going to be all over me. I know, you know, it's such a stretch. But seriously, either Never Enough uh, or Giver, the two uh, debut albums from Took, would have to be uh, my absolute go-to albums. I mean, they're in my CD player right now in my car. Yes, yeah. I still have a CD player. Ah, there you go. Good. <laughs> I still got one, too. One of my boys says that Took does just about every single cover song better than the original in his estimation. And that's, I know a little bit of a stretch and that's from a 16 year old who's been listening to my seventies, eighties, nineties, Canadian rock and roll since he was in the womb. But that, that's his view on just how good they are. And I think but, I'm bringing him to the show tomorrow night. Well, and, and KK's there tomorrow a, night too, right? Uh, yeah. It's a, just a, back a busy to back. week. It's a double <laughs> header, but listen, I, I, in all the years that I have uh, talked to the various artists that these guys have covered, whether it be Kim Mitchell, whether it be the guys from Streetheart, uh, the guys from Platinum Blonde, they have all said they do a better cover than the original. So your son is not wrong. Wow. Uh, just real quick, coming up on the show today, we're going to talk about the World Series. Jim Toth and I are going to discuss that uh, unbelievable game. This is a series between Houston and Philly. This is uh, one for the ages. So we'll talk about that. And we'll also talk about holiday spending. A brand new survey out of what Canadians are going to be doing this year. So lots coming up on Connecting Winnipeg. Hope you'll stay tuned. 
KK's on from 10 until 12 on Connecting Winnipeg. Jets at noon with Cameron Poitras and Jim Toth until 1 o'clock. The Jim Toth Show 1 to 3. The News with Rich and Julie 3 until 5 because the pregame show starts at 5. Puck drop at 7 o'clock. Winnipeg Jets versus Les Habitants. Les Montreal Canadiens. Very good, Brett. La première à toi. <laughs> Numero 10. Hey, by the way, we should probably give away our toque tickets tomorrow morning a little bit earlier since the show is tomorrow night. So watch out for that.